You know, I was trying to decide what I wanted to do here with LeBron James breaking the all-time record. Now, the Cavaliers defeat the Pistons tonight, by the way. A drubbing. They got far too close. Pistons cut it to within two, despite the fact that the Cavaliers at one point led this game by 31 points. But we'll get to that in a moment. I didn't want to just let the LeBron James record-setting greatest score in the history of the NBA moment go by unacknowledged. But I also didn't want to treat it flippantly, I guess. Because for the better part of the last 20 years, I have been living in a place where people regularly discredit LeBron, discount his accomplishments. I mean, you all live in the same world, but try doing it when you've been in Los Angeles for all this time and you've had to listen to Kobe fans cut him down early in his career and MJ fans pick up after that. And it just goes on and on. So there's a certain closure that comes with him breaking this record for me because essentially it is quite apparent it's going to become an argument against all the quantifiable evidence over time for people to say that he isn't the greatest player of all time. He's still got stuff left in the tank. But I thought what I wanted to do to commemorate this moment was let you inside my world a little and take you back to the beginning of my, I guess, professional journey, Dick riding LeBron essentially. Because back in 2006, when LeBron James had one of the most defining moments of his career against the Detroit Pistons, where he scored 48 points and he ripped off 29 of the Cavs' last 30 points, including the team's final 25 points. The day that led up to that game, I was working for the Lakers radio station and their midday show, which consisted of three men, a man named Vic the Brick Jacobs, who if you Google him, You will see him in images storming the court after Kobe Bryant hit a game winner against Phoenix. That's how big of a fan he is. He nearly lost his press credential because he needed to celebrate with Kobe. The second host, his name is Steve Hartman. He's the most verbose one in here. He says things such as, LeBron James is just a young Daryl Dawkins and he has no big time plays and on and on, obviously. All this stuff was from 2006, but sounds exceptionally stupid now. And then you have Michael Thompson, father of Clay Thompson, Laker, and also former number one overall draft choice, a good man. When LeBron James did what he did to the Detroit Pistons, I spent that night, like so many since that I've spent here on the Fear the Fro podcast, constructing what I felt was revenge upon people who didn't yet recognize what LeBron James was and would go on to prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that he is. So I put together a song, and you can hear the youth in my voice. And what blows my mind is I feel like a dinosaur at times when I listen to stuff that's this old. And then I step back and think, wait a minute. What LeBron James did and was commemorated in this song I'm about to play, he's still doing to this very day. He is still compiling gigantic professional accomplishments. It's an insanely long period of time, and this is just a time capsule moment from within there that I think you'll enjoy as a LeBron fan. This was set to the tune of Vato by Snoop Dogg featuring Be Real of Cypress Hill, one of my favorites. I'm just going to play it. It can speak for itself.
Where is LeBron? Why isn't he the man? No electricity. There isn't. You want to be a superstar? Not even close. But Cutlass and Saw for two years, three years now. Overrated. Don't believe Please. the hype. Maybe the next Daryl Dawkins. Am I right? You and Vic are sitting there to tell me and all the basketball fans he's not no big-time player. He's not a big-time player yet, no. Not even close. But he, give me one, one big, big-time time play. play. I was listening, sitting in my car. Godless. Ken and Tom, and they're talking to me. No electricity. Rick and Hartman heads up the rest, saying that LeBron James is hype and not a straight G. Overrated. Acting like his skills are a fantasy. Oh, no doubt. Only role he fits is complimentary. Where is he? Overrated. He has no heart. Not a top five talent and not even that smart. I'm a results-oriented guy. Either you get it done or you don't get it done. He, he can't step up. He cannot step up. He doesn't have the huevos like Kobe Bryant. I say this series will be over in five. Guaranteed. All right, you know, Michael, I'll give you one more chance to find somebody right, that actually to. says LeBron is a must-see. Hartman and Vic, did you see what I see? 25 straight points and a double overtime victory. Michael, I can't believe what they said. Uh-huh. They spread their cheeks and made room for their hands. And what you do? I made a parody and laid in what was said. Then we'll begin it with the montage that they dread. Who else but LeBron? Cavaliers defeat the Pistons in double overtime, 109-107. Franchise playoff record 48. There's no way he can do what he did today. He had all nine of Cleveland's points in the first overtime. This was absolutely an amazing performance. This was uh, one of the best individual performances I've ever seen. He had all nine of Cleveland's points in the second overtime. Probably the best way to describe it, wow, as LeBron scores 29 of the Cleveland Cavaliers' last 30. He scored 29 of his team's last 30 points. 51 minutes on the floor for LeBron and the 40 Eight points. This is a historic game, and people will be talking about this game for years to come. You think one of the best performances you've seen in the playoffs? Oh, they'll be running this on ESPN Classic for years and years and years. One of the greatest performances you will ever see. LeBron James takes over. He was listening. Looking at him tonight, he was listening. Who else but LeBron? Ladies and gentlemen, the Loose Cannons. With Victor Brick, Steve Hartman, and more importantly, Michael Thompson. What the hell is that? That was the prelude to your public apology, oh, you and please. Vic, to King James. Well, we'll do it with Vic first. Oh, two hands. That'll bring the house down. Three on the way. Good. Garland spins down the lane and laid it in. This crowd has erupted. Welcome to Fear the Frog, a podcast covering the Cleveland Cavaliers and the NBA with the voice of Fox Sports Radio. Figure out a way to stop. Listen and subscribe anywhere you get your podcasts. Here it is. My favorite show. And now, your host. His name is Bob Schmidt. Welcome to the Fear the Fro podcast. Lifelong Cavs fan, Bob Schmidt, the host, the voice of Fox Sports Radio, at Fear the Fro pod on Twitter. Thank you for joining me. Hopefully you enjoyed that. And a tip of the cap to LeBron James, who's been dominating for years. Now, right out of the gate, I want to acknowledge a trade happened after I taped a big chunk of this podcast. It was Josh Hart to the New York Knicks for Cam Reddish and a first-round draft choice with protections, lottery protected. Now, that makes some of what I said incorrect, but it's really kind of immaterial to the discussion that was taking place. It was just an example, which now, due to the trade being completed, sounds a bit dated. But just blow past that part. Take that for what it is. I just wanted to give you a disclaimer so you weren't confused about me sounding accurate now, but inaccurate later. That is going to impact some of the discussion that I had about Kevin Love and some of the Cavalier trade people and the rumors because Josh Hart was a man who was rumored and connected to the Cavs. And in discussing that, that is now rendered irrelevant. So I would advise you to do the following. 
just take that whole section with a grain of salt. It's not a very long section, but blow past it. Now, in the meantime, for that trade specifically, I like it for the Blazers. They didn't want to pay Hart what he's probably going to command this summer, and they managed to recoup a protected first-round pick and a guy who they have restricted free agency control over in Cam Reddish. So whether Reddish pans out or not is kind of immaterial. If what the Cavs were talking about sending was a Levert who would be a free agent this summer or even an Osman, I think I would take the first-round pick and Cam Reddish. So I like what the, the Blazers did there. But let's get to the game because the Cavaliers tonight put it on the Detroit Pistons in a game that on paper, or I should say if you look at the final score, it appears like it was complete domination. But it really wasn't in the middle of the game as the Cavaliers saw their lead cut to two points in the third quarter after a 12-2 run by the Pistons. Now, I don't know that this is one of those games you overanalyze because we saw what will be a very unconventional look from the Cavaliers. They started the game without Garland or Mitchell, so Neto got the call to start. They elevated him above Rubio for the sake of continuity, I assume, keeping Rubio playing with the bench guys, and Levert. And what we saw in the first quarter and the fourth quarter was exactly what you'd hope to see. However, what we saw in the second quarter and more specifically the third quarter, was a bit troubling. Now, in the first quarter, the Cavaliers came out of the gates and just looked dominant. It didn't even look like the Pistons were an NBA team. Their front court was overwhelmed. And the first six points of the game came from our bigs. And in that first quarter alone, 24 of the 32 points came in the paint. The Cavaliers finished the game tonight with 70 paint points, just an insane amount. And there was assists all over the place in that first quarter. Not just three early dimes from Neto, but three for a Coro of all people, and 11 first quarter assists. Both the bigs already had double digits before the first quarter was even done. But a great showing for the bigs as they combined for 39 points, 22 rebounds, and imposed their will on the front court of the Pistons in that first quarter. Six offensive rebounds for the Cavs in quarter number one. And Jared Allen had seven offensive rebounds of his own over the course of the game. Now, I thought Jalen Duran, the first-round pick of the Detroit Pistons, did very well for himself as the game went on. But in the first quarter, he was completely overwhelmed. And as the Pistons struggled to make anything at the beginning of that game, Boyan came out slow. Alec Burks was terrible, shot just 1-for-10 tonight. Isaiah Stewart couldn't hit much of anything. He finished the game 4-for-12, made just one of his five three-point attempts. It wasn't a game of accuracy for the Detroit Pistons. They were 0-for-7 from outside the arc in the first quarter and shot just 6-for-20. And when the game was all said and done, they shot 37% from the field and made just 8-of-32 attempts from three-point land. That's very rough. The Cavaliers didn't fare much better from three-point land. In a night with no Donovan Mitchell and Darius Garland, with the trade deadline right around the corner, you would have hoped that Osman and Levert came out and lit it up, but they did not do that at all. The two of them started out 1-for-12 in the first half. Now, the Cavaliers still held an 11-point lead at halftime, and most of that was due to the fact that they were getting great production from their front court, 27 points at half from Allen and Mobley, and even Lamar Stevens, who came in and got to take advantage of his newfound minutes, he was a perfect 3-for-3 in the first half with 7 points. So at halftime, you're sitting there riding high thinking, okay, this is going to be good. But in the third quarter, the Pistons ripped off a 12-to-2 run and cut the Cavaliers' lead to just 2 points, 62-60. to And then Osman 
finally had a little bit of luck, strung together a couple of buckets, sandwiched around a Rubio fadeaway jumper, and the Cavaliers opened it back up to six points. The Neto hit a, a huge three to stretch the lead to nine, and by the fourth quarter, it then became Dean Ball. After scoring the last bucket of the third, he gave a seven of his ten points in the fourth quarter. And it's also worth acknowledging that Karis LeVert gave us 10 of his 15 points on perfect shooting in the fourth quarter. So he showed up in crunch time, if there is such a thing as crunch time in a 28-point victory. Now, takeaways from this game. I don't think this is a game that you fixate too much on what you saw because, quite frankly, the Pistons roster is lacking. Cade is hurt. They're trying out different rotations. They got... Good performances out of Duran in the second half, I thought. I thought he had a good stretch in the third quarter. Boyan was okay, but he didn't shoot particularly well. On top of this not being a super talented roster at the moment, the way they performed tonight wasn't their best showing by any means. They shot horribly. And the Cavaliers won yet again, extending their stretch of big victories over teams and this win streak to four games. So it's a great win. I'm happy for it, but it's one that the Cavaliers should have had anyway. Things that I took out of this tonight as a Cavalier fan is that Neto, when called upon, was wonderful tonight. He and Okoro led the way in plus-minus. Neto was a plus-23, and he did a little bit of everything. 14 points, 8 assists, and again, was just a dogged defender. He had some incredible plays on that end, and there was even a play in this game where taking on Jaden Ivey in transition, he fouled him. They called the foul on Neto, and Ivey was so frustrated that he ended up getting a technical called on him, despite the fact that he got the foul called in his favor. Ivey finished the game a minus 23. The only performer who was worse for the Pistons in terms of plus-minus was Sadiq Bey, who was pretty rough tonight, one for six from the field, one for four from three, finished with just seven points and six rebounds. Three guys on the Pistons cracked double digits, and one of them just barely got there. Jay Navi finished with 10, Duran finished with 14, and Bogdanovich finished with 15. I liked what we got out of guys who were forced into larger roles. Neto, amazing. The guy just has so much heart. He's a tenacious defender. And Dean Wade, Got more aggressive as the game went on, and by the time it was all said and done, he had 10 points and 9 rebounds. Now we had our struggles. Levert was very bad, missed every 3-point shot he took, and I thought at moments, when we started to lose our lead and and let the, the margin shrink, it was because we went away from what was proving to be effective, which was Allen and Mobley, and also... If I could nitpick one thing about the rotation, there were times where I thought we were going with one big or the other a little bit too much when I loved seeing both of them out there for long stretches together. I thought that's obviously when we got our most effective basketball. Because Duran is physical and he's strong for a rookie, but when pressed to have to shut down both guys, that's when we saw things like Evan Mobley, all the second-chance points that came from our bigs. And certainly, there were a ton of them because the Cavaliers were all over the glass. Just some numbers to put into context how well this month is going for these Cleveland Cavaliers. The Cavaliers, for the month of February, during which they are now 4-0, have a 21.8 net rating. The next closest team is the Boston Celtics, who defeated the Philadelphia 76ers tonight with a 12.8. The Cavaliers are coming close to doubling up the net rating for the second-place team in the month of February. Now, 
on an individual level, on a namesake of the podcast level. Jarrett Allen, over the last four games during this win streak, has averaged 20 points, 12 rebounds, and two assists, and 20 points, more than that, in the last two games. 23 against the Wizards, and then another 20 tonight. So, excellent performance from him as he's shooting 76% from the floor during that stretch. Now, his free throws, rough tonight, 2 of 5. But, hey, it's the one ward on a beautiful, fuckable pig. Next up for the Cavaliers is a Pelicans team who, prior to this three-game winning streak, had lost 11 of 12, with their only victory coming against the very same Pistons squad that we played tonight. But they have found a rhythm since the return of Brandon Ingram with victories over the Lakers, victories over the Hawks, and victories over the Sacramento Kings. That's next for the Cavs if they want to make this four-game winning streak a five-game winning streak. But I want to get into some trade deadline stuff. I this is There's a lot of things I want to touch on on this podcast, so I'm spending less time than usual on the actual game. But I think there's good reason for that. This is not a lineup we'll typically see. The people who need to be acknowledged tonight, though, the work that Mobley and Allen did throughout the course of this game was incredible. Ten offensive rebounds between them, three for Mobley, seven for Allen, and Neto. I love his demeanor. Neto just has that fight in him. To get some of the, I mean, he got a steal off an inbound play. Like, he he just makes plays. He gets in people's heads. To draw a technical against Ivy after he was the one who got the foul called. To now have Rubio as the backup point guard and to have Neto behind him so that when called upon, he can have these type of games, it's big. Now the Cavaliers are just a game back of the Sixers, who lost and have lost two in a row now because the Boston Celtics did us a favor in that regard. We may not be closing ground on the Celtics, but we are quickly approaching overtaking the number three seed. And we have the tiebreakers on everyone. We beat the Celtics twice. We've beat the Bucks twice, and we have the better divisional record. We beat the Sixers once, so... I mean, that game coming up will probably prove to be much more difficult. But so far, so good. If we win that game, if we win that game and head into All-Star break ahead of the Sixers with a season sweep against both the Celtics and the Sixers in the regular season, Cavalier fandom will be ecstatic. But I want to touch on some NBA stories, and I'm going to begin negative here. I have more to say about the trade deadline, so I want to address this Kyrie thing from his introductory press conference with the Dallas Mavericks, where he talked about how he was disrespected by the Brooklyn organization. I'm just going to play the audio. Me personally, you know, just sitting in the seat today, I just know I want to be places where I'm celebrated uh, and not just tolerated or, or, or just, um, you know, kind of dealt with in a way that doesn't make me feel respected. Um, and there were times throughout this process when I was in Brooklyn where I felt very disrespected and my talent I work extremely hard at what I do. No one ever talks about my work ethic, though. Everyone talks about what I'm doing off the floor. So um, I just want to focus on what I can control, like I said. Thing is, Kyrie, you controlled all of it, at least the origin of it. You created all of this. If anyone was disrespectful, it was you towards the people who were affected by what you posted and the media and how you dealt with them when they questioned and tried to find out what your motives were, what your beliefs were. At every step, you push back. If there's anything that demonstrates the difference between the reality that we all live through and the one that Kyrie did, just listen to this quote. I left him in fourth place. I did what I was supposed to do. Took care of my teammates. Was uh, incredibly selfless in my approach to leading. Incredibly selfless. It was so selfless to refuse to apologize to the people that were hurt. Incredible leadership. 
We're in fourth place. Mission accomplished. I work extremely hard at what I do. No one ever talks about my work ethic, though. Not to nitpick, but people talk about how incredibly talented you are at basketball all the time, which presumably took a lot of work. But generally, people who are praised for their work ethic show up to work. That probably counts in the negative column for you, considering it was a choice. And to be clear, I'm not taking you to task for the choice itself. Just the fact selfless, by definition, is describing the exact opposite of what you chose. You put yourself first. And I'm not even saying that that's the wrong choice, but I am saying that it is absolutely not selfless. I'm not going to ride this into the ground, but again, deleting his apology off of Instagram now that he's in Dallas. And when questioned about it, he said, well, I delete stuff all the time and I still stand by my apology. Yeah, I delete a lot of things on my Instagram. You know, I delete things all the time and it's no disrespect to anyone within the community. Um, just living my life. Why delete it then? Kyrie Irving has learned more hard lessons at 30 than most people will in their entire life. And even with everything that's transpired until now, he didn't even give a second thought to how that might be received. I can't imagine that. Anybody who grew up in this culture understands that deleting something from the internet doesn't get rid of it. It doesn't prevent anybody from seeing it. Now, I think the message most people will take away from that is that you're not sorry and that you're showing the Nets that they have no control over you anymore. It's amazing that in the span of two, three days, he hadn't even finished his first practice with the Mavericks, and already this off-the-court story was leading the headlines. And I'm sure he would pin that on the media. But again, it's always his first action that precipitates the reaction. But it doesn't end there, guys, because uh, Draymond Green had something to say, too. I am told that they would not trade him to the Lakers, and that is what I call billionaire petty. That is Josiah saying, listen, man, that's where he want to go. I don't care if they offer the best deal or not. I can be petty, too. Now, it should be no surprise that I see a few holes in what Draymond had to say here, most notably that the offer that Dallas put on the table seems better to me than Russell Westbrook and two first-round picks. Instead, they get two players while trying to retain Durant and an unprotected first-round pick from a team who, if this goes south, Luka's out. There's a value to possibly keeping Kevin Durant on board and not having him force his way out that's far greater than one extra draft pick that's five years into the future, in my opinion. Because Dorian Finney-Smith has trade value in and of himself. He might return something that's a first-round pick. Maybe not a premium one, but probably something that's more available in the short term. And secondarily, not to pick more nits, but is it actually petty to not capitulate to someone who went public with his desire to be traded and thus removed all of your leverage? Everybody realized the Nets were in an untenable situation. I look at that, if anything, as just matching the same energy. I don't blame him. Earlier in this very press conference, he said that he should have vetted the front office more. That was his big mistake, implying that somehow they had something to hide. Um, but the greatest lesson I could share with you that I learned from signing in Brooklyn for free agency is I wish I would have got to know the people that were behind the organization. I, I went in there and was just a kid with a dream on my mind with KD. And you're a kid when it's convenient, but you're a grown man who knows himself when it's not. A kid with a dream on my mind with KD and... You know, we wanted to bring a, a championship to a young organization. They were only around for six years. But when uh, 
things start to change and you're not getting transparency and honesty, I don't know what person feels comfortable or confident in that type of environment. They weren't transparent. If anything, you were the one who refused to be transparent. You refused to answer questions. You were defiant with the media. You've convinced yourself that the problem was that the organization's feelings weren't clear enough. I think it's pretty clear that the organization's priorities are winning. I don't think you should need that explained to you. Most normal people understand that employers care about people showing up at work and working towards their goals, which in this case is winning a championship. At some point, you just have to come to terms with your role in this. You never will, though, because you're always the victim. And I've said that a thousand times, and I'm done with this. One other thing I wanted to touch on here in regards to the NBA trade deadline and sort of LeBron James, it's sort of a crossover conversation that links back to the Cavaliers. In watching LeBron break that record the other night, it highlighted one of the main problems of his entire era, really, with the Lakers since that championship season. They took depth pieces on reasonable contracts, maybe slightly inflated contracts, but they cashed all those in. Kuzma, KCP, Montrezl Harrell, they let Caruso walk. And they became exceptionally top-heavy. Throughout the course of this season, Russell Westbrook trade rumors are in no short supply. And they missed out on an opportunity to get Kyrie. But in a sense, I think that's a better thing for them for a very specific reason. Tonight, the Lakers finalized a trade that sends Russell Westbrook to Utah. That deal brings back to the Lakers for the cost of Westbrook and one of those first-round picks that they hold on to. Three players who will be added to their rotation. D'Angelo Russell, originally drafted by the Lakers, the point guard returning from Minnesota, who clearly has no interest in paying him what they would have to to retain him this summer, along with Jared Vanderbilt from Utah and Malik Beasley, a volume three-point shooter, a long-rangey defender, just a good glue guy in Vanderbilt on a very reasonable deal. So that deal is done. Three rotation players added for Westbrook before he exits the books this summer. I like that very much for a very specific reason that mirrors my desires to potentially look into the Kevin Love trade market, which is Kevin Love hits free agency this summer. Now, even if the Cavs retain him, it will likely be on a very, very small deal. The problem that the Lakers had until tonight is that almost all their players exist in the exceptionally overpaid category or the minimum contract roster filler category. Basically, Pat Beverly was the only movable one in that 10 to $20 million range, and nobody really wanted him, so it had to be bundled with picks, the same as Westbrook. The Cavs have most of their salary tied up in unmovable people, and I say unmovable, meaning they're part of the core. Mitchell, Allen, Mobley, Darius. If you pass on the opportunity to turn Kevin Love's $28 million into a couple of productive salary slots, maybe you grab a couple of guys in that 10 to $15 million range. Now, not perfect guys. You'd have to take on people with baggage. Perhaps you'd have to take on people who are on contracts that are excessive considering what they're able to contribute. But just take the talent portion out of this conversation now. Look at it as more of, we need to be able to have pieces that we can ship out alongside picks and assets in the future in order to make deals possible. And if we let Kevin or Karis go off the books, and even if we retain them in the summer on smaller deals, more commensurate 
with the contributions that they're giving. It doesn't help dig us out of this situation, which we are fast approaching, which is that we are going to be a team whose salary structure could very easily find itself with a similar layout to the Lakers. Just look at the books for next year. You have Mitchell at $33 million. You have Garland at $34 million. You have Allen at $20 million. And you have nothing between Jared Allen's $20 million a year and Evan Mobley's $9 million a year. And we know we're not moving Mobley. So your largest movable contract that is on the books as of right now would be Isaac Okoro at $8.9 million. That is problematic. Those are all guys that are important to the rotation for the Cavs. So these constructions of trying to bring in useful players, oftentimes they require sending out a useful player. I would love to be able to take a man who's out of the rotation now, despite my feelings for Kevin, and turn that deal into two more productive salary slots because it would give the Cavs more options. And with what the Lakers are doing in bringing in Jared Vanderbilt, who would be retained next year on his current contract for somewhere around $5 million a season, and having Malik Beasley, who has a team option for around $15 million a season, there's value to them beyond just what they'll give on the court. Beasley is a volume three-point shooter, always something LeBron needs. Vanderbilt is a very good, versatile front court defender who can rebound, who can put in some garbage buckets and clean stuff up. That will be helpful on a Lakers team who I think we can all acknowledge, those of us who watched that game against the Thunder, that defense looked horrible. And generally, Davis will give you more than that. But they need all the help that they can get in terms of productive role players. So, To go from, well, we wanted Kyrie, who's an immense talent, but a complete loose cannon, and also entering unrestricted free agency, so could walk away. You never know. You can't bank on that guy being reliable. Who knows how that would have played out, even if he landed in L.A. I think this is one of those situations where you win by losing because they get three players. And D'Angelo Russell, this is a terrible upcoming free agent market. We're talking about the headliners being a 32-year-old Chris Middleton, a 32-year-old Vooch, Fred Van Fleet with a player option, Jeremy Grant, who will likely stay in Portland. It's not all that overwhelmingly great. And that's to say nothing of the fact that you generally have to pay the top free agents in unrestricted free agency above what their worth probably should be. Now, that's not to say it can't work out, but how many people, myself included, thought, holy shit, $25 million for Jalen Brunson that seems excessive. Now, it seems like a bargain. And if that works out like that for people who spend an unrestricted free agency, fantastic. But I think that's more the outlier than the rule. The best unrestricted free agents who would be point guards would be Kyrie Irving, would be Fred Van Vliet, would be, I guess, possibly Harden if he opted out, and would be D'Angelo Russell. And D'Angelo Russell is substantially younger than guys like Van Vliet, guys like Conley. He could play a role with the Lakers moving forward. And even if he's not an ideal fit, if a year from now LeBron is still desperate to try to figure out some sort of combination of players around him who can work, guys like Vanderbilt and Beasley and D'Angelo Russell will still be movable. Vanderbilt's deal is so small that people looking to add a good defender and a contributor in the front court would snatch him up instantaneously. Is D'Angelo Russell Kyrie? No. But he's doing 18 points and 6 rebounds on his best true shooting percentage in quite some time. I mean, this is a man shooting 40% from three, and LeBron needs shooters, and he's 26 years old. You will be able to get him for much less 
than Kyrie Irving. And you'll be able to do it in a trade construction that puts a couple other pieces around him, including a volume three-point shooter and Malik Beasley. As it pertains to the Cavs, they have an opportunity to take one player who is not a big part of their rotation moving forward and due to the size of his current contract, turn it into a couple players who can at least eat minutes and help facilitate future deals. Maybe you flip love for a canard and a roco. We send some second-round picks. Maybe you flip him for a heart bundled with a nurk. And, and again, these aren't ideas that have any validity to them. They're just ones where the money roughly works. And I think we're talking about players who have found their way out of favor somewhat with the long-term plans of their present teams. I'm not saying I want to move Karras based on you know what he's done on the court. I think he's been very solid. And especially when we miss one of Mitchell or Garland, I think he's stepped up admirably for most of the season. But there are two things to consider here. One is that Karras is going to hit this summer, and he's going to have a kind of leverage over a team hoping to contend that we saw with a guy like Tristan Thompson or J.R. Smith. He will have the leverage of being able to say, if you don't pay me what I want, I will walk away and you cannot replace me. Because again, if you just renounced Kevin Love and Karis Lerard, both of them, along with all the other fringe guys, you know, you Robin Lopez, Neto, those guys, even if you let all of them walk, you would end up with about eight players on your roster. And depending how aggressive you were in trimming people off the books, between 6 and $12 million in cap space. There's $105 million committed next year for the starting lineup, and they expect the salary cap to be around 128 or so, maybe up to 134. So that's not set yet, but we're not talking about a lot of wiggle room. The play here for Karis, if they don't make a trade and they don't extend you, is to ask for what you want because in all likelihood, the Cavs will cave and pay him beyond what he should get in an open market. Now, if I was saying, what do I think Karras deserves based on his actual basketball play this season, I would say an average annual salary of somewhere between 12 and $15 million. But is it possible that he gets closer to what Sexton got because he holds a gun to the Cavs' head? Sure, maybe. Maybe in the end, the Cavs will find out that the guy that they ended up having to pay more than they wanted was the one who wasn't 23-year-old Colin Sexton. It was Levert. Who knows? So to Kevin Love, he's been a complete pro, and I think he would want to stay here because he's talked about how much he loves the chemistry. But I think, similar to what they did with Rubio, you have to at least consider having a second hard conversation with Kevin Love about using him to improve the outlook of the Cavs team moving forward. Kevin is a smart player. You could sit him down and say, listen, Kevin, this is not a team that's going to win the title this year. But... With a little more support for our core four, we could win a title in the very short-term future. What we do right now at this trade deadline before Darius Garland's extension kicks in could impact our ability to do that in the future. And if they found a situation where they could get a couple of slightly damaged or overplayed, overpaid role players for a Kevin Love and some marginal draft assets, a second-round pick, a couple second-round picks then I think it's worth investigating. There's nothing to say Love couldn't do the same thing Rubio did, which is just sign on in the summer, be back with the same squad, with a little bit of extra firepower, and the respect of the fan base who would know what Kevin did, the sacrifice that he did to make that happen. Now, do I anticipate that it will happen? No. But 
it's always been important to remember the value of having movable salary slots because I think much of the frustration in all these hypothetical discussions is that in order to get back anyone of substance, it has required moving one of Osman, Okoro, or Levert, three guys who are important to this team. Other teams may view them as expirings, but we view them as important parts of our rotation that just happen to be dead money. We don't have any fluff except Windler. Kevin, a $30 million piece of fluff at the moment, or Windler, a $5 million always injured piece of fluff. Nobody wants to move a Coro. Everybody likes what Osmond's been doing lately. And Levert, while flawed in certain ways, is still a player who's a solid piece of our rotation. So nobody really wants to move them without a significant upgrade being what's coming back. And that's really just not what is out there on the market right now. So I guess what I'm saying here is I think the Lakers are a shining beacon here, a great example for why it can be very dangerous to be too top-heavy, and even more so when you don't have a lot of draft assets, which the Cavs do not. The Clippers, they have a bunch of these mid-range players to make deals work. The Mavericks, they benefited with it with Kyrie because they could pluck a couple of guys who are making between 10 and 20-ish million dollars to equal the salaries of Kyrie without feeling like they were taking such a significant step back that it wasn't worth it. So you have to take a long, hard look at moving love. And do I think it'll happen? No. But I wanted to get my feelings on this onto the podcast because in a day they're going to be irrelevant. I don't know what will transpire between now and this summer, but I do think that there's a distinct chance that if we do not do anything, then we're going to find ourselves overpaying to retain Levert and realizing next year, if we again find ourselves in a situation where we're trying to add to the rotation, that we have very little to do it with. Now, that's not to be all doom and gloom because I think our rotation has looked great and you can get a lot of development internally just from... Dean Wade and Okoro. There's always the mid-level exceptions. There's always the buyout market. But it's a bullet in the chamber that maybe we should just fire off. And when I think about a guy like Josh Hart, who's been discussed so often, I'm not thinking about those deals anymore in the context of, well, Levert. I'm thinking about what can be done with Windler and seconds, and is there anything that can be done with love and seconds? Now, if the Blazers, for example, if you could incentivize them with two, three seconds to take love and send back Hart and say Nurkic, would I do it? Yeah. Would they do it? Probably not. But I just mean that's something where the money roughly works because both those guys make around $15 million, give or take. And there, you'd have a another guy in the front court to sit behind Jared Allen, Evan Mobley. He's not a perfect player, but he's certainly a very useful NBA player in certain situations, a guy who can bang if you end up with a Joel Embiid matchup, and then you get Hart. But more importantly, you have the ability to retain Hart. So you've turned Love into two more rotation players who look to have more value moving forward, given that they're younger and more productive, who will give you a couple extra options in upcoming seasons as far as players who can possibly be moved. You have the Clippers, who I discussed. You have the Hornets, who have... You know, Oubre, McDaniels, Hayward, maybe some sort of construction there. These are all just hypotheticals. I just want them to do their due diligence. So if you can find a couple of these moves on the fringes that give you just options, you have to consider them. And that's all I'll say on it. Trade deadline tomorrow, 3 p.m. Eastern, noon Pacific. If anything happens, I will do a Fear the Fro pod 
emergency episode. But if not, well, then we will resume this conversation after everything shakes out, because I'm sure there will be moves worth discussing. Thank you to all of you who have rated the podcast on Spotify or written reviews on Apple or wherever you may listen. I appreciate all those things. It's awesome to see it grow. I can tell more people can find it because of the effort that you're putting in, which does help me in the form of being able to get bigger and better guests. Now, I'm fighting an uphill battle in some regard as I was listening to the chase down, and I recommend their pre-trade deadline podcast with Chris Fedor. I was thinking, listen to this respectable show, hosting a respectable guest. This is what you can't pull off with your dick jokes all the time. You just have to amass such a large, like-minded group of Cavs faithful that nobody will be able to deny the sheer force of will that is the Fear the Fro podcast. And that is what I am working towards. Now, that's still a ways away. Now, would it be a more straight line to respectability if I didn't regularly just jerk the wheel into the toilet? Certainly. Did he say girth? But I can't be controlled. Can you rein in the sun? Can you stop a wildflower from blooming? No. What I'm saying here is that when you lie about me being a stand-up guy in the reviews and I email people and I say, hey, will you come on the podcast? And then they say, hey, I've never heard of this guy, but you know what? I'll look at his podcast page and see if it's a respectable endeavor. And then they see lots of reviews and they see kind sentiments that you have shared with the public. For many people, that's as far as it goes and they agree just based on that. Now, Anyone who listens to the podcast, of course, understands I'm garbage. But I am trying to attract a very specific subset of podcast guests. Very insightful, very entertaining, very informative, but so busy that they're too lazy to properly vet me. The people who are so busy and so good at what they do that they can't commit the time to actually listen to my podcast before they come on it. I want the super talented, super knowledgeable guys who just say, fine, I'll give you 20 minutes and I'll never think about you again. I want the type of person who is so accomplished and who is so busy that let's say they're a father racing home from their job where they work their ass off, they're a titan of industry, and they say, I got to pick up some formula. Baby's hungry. And they see a display. And oh, look at that. One's on sale. I guess I'll grab that one. On a surface level, that checks the boxes. Let's get that one. Now, sure, maybe that baby formula was recalled because it killed a bunch of children. But I want people so busy and so surface level that we're leaving dead babies everywhere. So let's do this. You go on that Apple store and you review the shit out of it and lie your ass off. I'm totally fine. You can tell people I have an 8-inch penis. That's fine by me. I want to see someone post the word integrity, something I have none of. Do it in all caps for all I care. The more the better, as far as I'm concerned. And I mean that on both girth and reviews. So you get out there and you do your part. And let's make the Fear the Fro podcast have the kind of notoriety of a, of a Ted Bundy, of a Timothy McVeigh, of a Draymond Green, of a Ted Kaczynski. Sure, people at the end of my time on this earth may say that this guy was responsible for horrible transgressions against all of humankind. But they'll remember the name. Fear the Fro podcast. We'll be back post-trade deadline. Thank you, everybody. This has been Fear the Fro. If you like the show, subscribe and rate wherever you listen. Our guy, Bob Schmidt, always gets a reaction out of it. Join us next time for more Cavs and NBA coverage.